You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. There's not a lot of introduction I'm going to do with this one as I did with the last one. We have 180 slides we need to get through. Uh, I'm going to blur fast. That's the way it is. It's, you have the deck. Uh, I have no financial interest to disclose. And here's my email address. I want you guys to have it. If you guys have questions, I don't care if it's a question specifically in relation to this talk. If you have a question about anything surgical, I don't know, or um, you know, anything derm, I've done this a long time, whatever you want to shoot at me, I, I'm pretty good about getting right back to you. But there are some things I'm going to go through very quickly here. I want to make sure that you have my email to ask those questions. Uh, or if there's something I say that is somewhat controversial to you, you don't agree with, that's probably true. Uh, shoot me an email. I'd be happy to explain why I'm correct. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Uh, but I train a lot of students, uh, 18 years worth of training PA students in derm, and specifically derm surgery. And uh, there's just some truths that I've learned over all these years that I would like to share with you, some pearls to get started. Like, how do you go from someone who has a successful career as a dermatologic surgeon versus someone that uh, maybe has a little work left to do, right? Has a little uh, more they could do better. Uh, How do we do that? How do we become successful and not take the other path? And the first thing I would like to tell you is that surgical excellence is a lifelong pursuit. You cannot wake up this morning and decide, I'm going to be excellent in derm surgery today. That's the way it's going to be. Yeah, you may have decided that today, but it's going to take you a while to get to that point. You can't decide that I'm going to attend that Johnson's lecture, and by the time that I'm done, I'm going to be uh, an excellent surgeon. Okay? What you need to do is hopefully get a couple of tips of what we talk about today and pack them away for, for future use. And the next class that you're in, you get a couple of tips. And the next class after that, and the workshop after that, and the, the article that you read, and everything that you do, you get a tip or two from each one, and you just pack it away for future use. And eventually, one day, you're going to look down. And, and man, I, I was trying to decide where I am in this in this path. I, again, I've done this a long time, and I feel like I'm like halfway there. I, I try every day to get better, and I read, and I talk, and I, it's a passion of mine, but I don't know if you ever really feel like you get to the end. And, and uh, um, There are many surgical techniques, and if anybody tells you that their technique is the only way and it's the right way, uh, probably needs to check their ego just a little bit because there are many different ways of doing things. If you're getting a well-proximated wound, you're getting eversion, minimal tension, and good cosmetic outcomes, I really don't care how you got there. Like, I'm not going to tell you you need to hold it a certain way. I'm not going to tell you. If you're getting good cosmetic outcomes, that's the proof. You are set, okay? That's what it's about. It's not about doing it a, a certain person's certain way. Now, if they're your supervising physician and they're telling you to do it a certain way, I, I'm not, you know, don't tell them that Johnson told me that's not the way that it's going to be. Uh, you probably need to do it that way. But there are many different ways of doing things, and I, I would point to this. Uh, every time there's a, like, I'm down in Florida, and we have the FSDPA conference, and so I try to come here too, and have taught the surgical conference, or the uh, workshops. But, uh, so I always try to sit in, because there's always something that I'm going to pick up, even the littlest thing. And, and a couple of years ago, uh, I guess it was a couple of conferences ago, but last year, uh, this was a Mohs surgeon, very accomplished in Florida, came up to speak, and he made this comment, which just kind of surprised me. And he said, the longer I perform surgeries, the less I undermine. In most cases, causes unnecessary tissue damage, and in the end, plays minimal role in the cosmetic outcomes of your surgeries. And I'm like, wow. 
The more he does it, the less he undermines. Uh, so I, I kind of thought about that, and, and certainly in the patient that bleeds and bleeding a lot, and certainly in the patient where there's already plenty of laxity, like on the neck, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to undermine that much. But it just really caused me to think about that. And the very next year, which is just recently, uh, a Mohs surgeon equally accomplished his comment. I probably should have undermined the word all because he, he emphasized it. He says, undermine all your surgeries with as widely as reasonable to help minimize tension on your wound and, wound and improve the cosmetic outcomes of your surgery. So two accomplished Mohs surgeons with slightly different uh, takes on that uh, topic. I would say the truth is probably in the middle somewhere, right? Like some people you have to undermine, you gotta do it because it's super tight. And if you don't, too much tension on your wound and you're gonna, you're gonna have necrosis dehiscence. So there are some cases where you do, but I guess the, the more time goes, I do probably undermine a little less than I used to uh, in the past. Establish a good foundation. We were talking about this on the break. Like, where do I go from here? How do I get better? What do we do? Establish a good foundation. Everywhere you go from there, you can build on it. Start with good sub-Q sutures and work your way up. Don't try, don't think, you know, when I I teach these uh, surgical uh, workshops, and the guys that come up and tell me, I want to learn the running vertical mattress suture. Because, and I'm like, dude, I haven't, I haven't used that in like 20 years. I don't know when the last time I used that suture. Fancy sutures do not make you an expert. Okay? Don't get into doing these fancy sutures thinking that's what's going to make. It's about good cosmetic outcomes. And you get that through minimal tension, through wound diversion, through uh, you know, approximation of the edges, good sterile technique. Uh, Handling your, your tissue gently. You know, your tissue is your blood supply to your wound. It's a nutrient to help it heal. And if you're grabbing it with forceps and you're twisting it and you're crushing it, you're crushing your blood supply. So I use, I use skin hooks on everything. It took me a while to get to that point, but I, I can't imagine uh, not using them now. But you, if you're using forceps, just gentle lift, not grab and twist. So uh, I, I guess that's not even on there as far as fancy sutures just came to mind. But that's what makes a... Uh, an expert surgeon is good, reproducible cosmetic outcomes and minimal complications, which we'll talk about. If you're at our last lecture, you got a whopping dose of this, that all your uh, surgeries or not all of your surgeries are going to turn out perfect, right? We've all been there. Um, It stinks. I hate it. Uh, Nothing makes you feel worse than something you tried to do well and to see it. It's It's kind of a a kick in the stomach or a slap in the face to see something you tried hard in to just turn out awful. So it happens to us all. But if you just take these pearls to to heart and you you try and years go by and every year you're trying to get better, uh, every year you're working on uh, good cosmetic outcomes and you're handling your tissue gently and you're just doing all that you can and talking to people and attending these conferences and just day by day trying to get better. Uh, you'll do well. So surgical pearl number one, we talked about this in the earlier talk. If you can't deal with surgical complications, don't pick up a, a scalpel. Uh, as I said, my doc told me one time, if you, if you don't want complications, just treat acne. Okay? Is this going to happen? Try the best of our ability, just outcomes aren't going to be great. It just, it just happens. This is one I showed earlier. This was a uh, surgical excision by our, pl- our, our Mo surgeon. That was the uh, it was actually our plastics after Mose. He was doing the closure. Uh, so this is our plastic surgeon. That was the first closure, and that was his, uh, that was his fix. That was the scar revision. Looked just as, really about as bad as the first one, right? So it just kind of happens. It's the way that it is. Now, why people heal like that, it's, it's difficult to say. Now, I don't know is there, if there's anybody. I certainly wouldn't raise your hand if anybody thinks that this is a good cosmetic outcome. 
Okay, so doing surgery is more than just pulling a wound together. This guy had his wound pulled together, right? Anybody, day one in PA school, you could pull a wound together, right? You could throw a suture and get it to come together. But this is awful. It's awful for a number of reasons. It's puckered. Uh, it crosses two cosmetic subunits. It goes from the nose to the medial cheek. You're crossing into a second cosmetic subunit. Everything about this looks awful. So I think if this was your... Uh, parent, your brother, your family member in any way wouldn't be happy with this. So how are we going to get to this? How, if, if we're going to talk about improving cosmetic outcomes, we have to talk about then what causes poor outcomes. So that's the first question. Which of the following are recognized factors of poor surgical outcomes? Tobacco use, infection, elect, uh, excessive electric cautery, wound tension, or all of the above? Yeah, good. Great job. Those are all recognized factors. Factors leading to poor surgical outcomes. Tobacco use, home wound care. We talked about that earlier, right? The guy digging in the dirt with no bandage on his wound. Home wound care. I'd say the top two are patient-dependent. The middle two, I don't know, God-dependent. I'm not sure what you think about that. Infection, poor healing. Like where does, Some patients just don't heal well. That's the way that it is. And then the, the, uh, the last one kind of falls on us, doesn't it? Poor surgical technique. That, that's us. So that's what we're going to mainly talk about. If you don't believe that smoking has an impact on the outcome of your um, surgical closure or a wound healing, this is nasolabial flap for large defect on the nose. Uh, taken, you see it from the nasolabial fold, did a running suture down the side. Very happy with this outcome. Expected it to be great, and the guy is a smoker. Okay. Uh, you know, a flap has its own blood supply, so that smoking, uh, that smoking compromised that whole blood supply of that flap, and the whole thing died. Now, you tell patients to take it easy, yet they're going to go home and lift and move and, I don't know, late-night twister with their significant other, and you're going to end up with, uh, with broken sutures, right? Pop the sub-Qs. So it's going to happen. That's home wound care for the patient. You guys remember this one, digging in the dirt, popped his sutures. That's, you know, home wound care. But sometimes things just get infected and we're not sure why, okay? These things are, remember I don't say, we, this is rare to get infections because patients are going to remember, I have a rare infection. Uh, you say, things are, this is uncommon for this to occur and sometimes it just happens. Here's the patient in the back, back of the leg. Now this is a, this is a closure on the lower extremity. This is just below the calf. And uh, we were talking about the Scripps course earlier. There were some questions about that. It's in San Diego coming up in August. And this is a... Uh, this is information that I took from that course. Which of the following do not require postoperative antibiotics? I think that was written wrong. Well, we'll see. So which of the following do not? Yeah, so I see how it was written there. It's surgeries on the leg. It really is surgeries below the knee. Um, no, so which, which of the following do not require just any surgery on the leg? If you're doing it on the thigh, if uh, uh, anywhere above the knee, it does not require. So healing by secondary intention, skin grafts, and flaps on the nose. So this is the information. So if it's below the knee, uh, definitely needs uh, postoperative. I don't write a lot of postoperative antibiotics. I just don't. Uh, I know Dr. Schiff, he writes them for every post-MOS, and, and that's probably where we differ, the one area that we differ 
in our medical practice. I don't write a lot of antibiotics except in these situations. Below the knee, healing by secondary intention, um, growing a lot, of, a lot of bacteria there. Makes sense in, if you're doing surgery in infected skin that you put them on antibiotics, right? Flaps on the nose, skin grafts, and multiple procedures the same day. So when I get ready to give these talks, which I've done for years, these surgery talks, done workshops, I, Dr. Schiff likes to go through them and, and see what I found. I, I spend hours, late night hours, going through our computers and picking out examples that I can show you guys, things that work well and things that don't work well. And I was going through the deck, and he was looking through it, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And he come, we come to this one, <laughs> and he says to me, hey, that's my closure. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's, that, that's your closure. Sorry about that. Um, but what happened is you can clearly see the puckering that's at the top of that wound. And, and this old guy probably makes no difference, right? This guy could probably care less that there's puckers on, the, on that um, surgery. He just wanted to close cancer-free. But I can tell you right now what happened. You guys see what happened? That patient was turned to the right. They drew the closure. They closed it. And then the patient looks back to anatomical neutral position, and you got puckering. So the take-home point is this. When you draw your closure and you're following relaxed skin tension lines, always, always, always have the patient in anatomical position. They are like this, looking straight ahead. Okay? As soon as you do this, or as soon as you do this, those relaxed skin tension lines change, and the orientation of your closure is now going to be wrong. Okay? So it's a good thing Dr. Schiff and I have a very good working relationship. Uh, I would hate to have uh, shown that to him otherwise. This is one that goes across the back. I, I can't think of a situation where I go from left back across the middle to the right back. That's, that's probably poor orientation there. If it involves the center, it probably goes up and down. Like you see a back surgery from ortho, it always kind of goes up and down. Same thing in the mid-chest. You see the surgeries go up and down, vertical, not horizontal in that location. You just get more um, tissue movement by going at an angle. And if, if you look at it, that the relaxed skin tension lines are kind of at a 45-degree angle down away from the spine, not going across. So that's clearly orientation issue. And then this, so this was a coworker that I worked with uh, for a while that called and said, uh, you know, I'm having uh, problems with my closures. I, I'm just not sure what's going on. And, and so I started to take a look. And there was an issue. What is the optimal length to width of an excision? What should it be? All right, pretty good, three to one. That's, that's right. Surgical pearl number three, the linear closure design should be at least three to one. That's three times as long as it is wide. So it's a 1.5 width that should be 4.5 length, right? That's three to one, okay? Uh, when I started looking at her closures, and she's like, I just don't understand. Like, every one that I'm doing is dehissing. And I started taking a look through these. Do you see, like, the length is about the same as the width? Like, you almost can make an argument that it's going vertical versus horizontal, right? It's almost the same length there. That's the problem, too much tension. And as I looked, it was over and over and over. Her, and just wasn't picking up that that was the problem. It was a problem in the design. So I sent her one. I was like, listen, see, it needs to be about three times as long as it is wide. And you'll, if you do it that way, you'll get minimal tension on your wound. You'll get nice wound diversion, and you'll get a good cosmetic outcome. Um, seemed to make a difference as time went by. She started doing that and, and actually uh, got pretty good 
at doing those, but you can actually use the Miltech Surgery Guide if you don't want to hand draw it. I hand draw it every time now, and whenever I get questioned by the student, I'm always like, see, it's like I've done it enough times with this silly little surgery guide. I think I can eye it by now. But the, uh, you can use that surgery guide in between, you know, as you're doing, uh, getting ready for your closure. You just put it over the, the center. You can mark out your, your margins and then put it on to see which one fits in the direction and, uh, and just draw it out. So I don't think there's any... Uh, surgery talk that's really worth anything that doesn't include some type of safety conversation, right? So let's talk a little bit about safety. And we were talking at the break, I really wasn't sure where we were at uh, as a group, like what should I cover and what's too basic and what's too advanced, like I wasn't sure. But this is, this is stuff for all of us, no matter where you're at. And the facial nerve has, has uh, five branches, we all know that. To Zanzibar by motor car, if you ever wondered how to remember. Temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal, mandibular, and the cervical, right? To Zanzibar by motor car. It's how, I don't know, I remember that years ago. But even if you're not doing surgeries on the face, if you're doing punch biopsies, something melanocytic or, I don't know, whatever reason you're going to do a punch, you still should know that uh, there's two branches that you really need to pay attention to, and that's the temporal and the marginal mandibular. Now, the marginal mandibular, these are both motor nerves, branches off the facial nerve. You've got to pay attention to these. Uh, the marginal mandibular, by its name, runs along the margin of the mandible, but not if a patient's 80 years old. They're going to start to sag, and that marginal mandibular is going to fall down into the upper part of the neck. So anywhere in that area, just be careful. Don't uh, arbitrarily and deeply go after a punch in those areas. You can transect the nerve. Now, the nerve that's most often uh, injured in head and neck surgery is going to be the great auricular nerve. But the great auricular nerve is a sensory nerve. It's not a motor nerve. So don't worry as much about that. And here's a great picture of a, a great auricular nerve that I transected while taking a layer doing most. And it's really what happened. But if you're taking a layer and you're cutting out cancer and you transect a nerve, which is why we took the picture, you transect it while cutting out the cancer, there is no liability in that. You've got to get the cancer out. It's part, the nerve ran through the cancer. There's no, no option there. Uh, but if you are transecting that nerve in the process of doing the cosmetic closure, that's another issue. So we have the picture of the fact that the nerve was transected prior to doing the, the cosmetic closure. Great auricular nerve. So what happens there? You flick them in the ear, can't feel a thing, right? That's a sensory nerve. That's what innervates is the, the ear, and, the, and you won't feel anything. All right. Temporal branch, the marginal mandibular, those are the two of the facial nerve, the great auricular nerve, but it's the spinal accessory nerve that we need to pay attention to. You transect and you bag the spinal accessory nerve, um, this is what happens. You get a wing scapula on the left-hand side, you get a web neck that's there. And I actually had a friend that got sued on this. It was a doctor out in, in Colorado. And a patient came in and said, hey, I need this cystic sized. And he's like, well, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm, we weren't scheduled for this. He's like, listen, I took off work. Just I need you to take this out. So he added him on the schedule, bagged the spinal accessory nerve, and got sued. So we all need to know where the spinal accessory nerve is. That's why I put the silly little focus thing on there. Uh, you need to pay attention where this one is. All right, so they will tell you to transect, to, to draw a line from the mastoid to the angle of the, of the mandible, and then bisect that in two, okay? Instead of going through all that, just start at the earlobe, because that's always going to be about right. So you start at the earlobe, come back six centimeters to the posterior triangle, and you come back six centimeters. I just the other day, just a couple days ago, saw this exact one, took a picture of it, but I had already submitted the, the deck, you know, actually a couple months ago, but... Uh, 
I wanted to show you that picture of how that was on there, of that me taking that six centimeters, because it's right there. And what I'm telling you is, unless you're doing a ton of surgery in this area, unless you feel optimally confident, if you're 5.5 centimeters, seven centimeters, if you're in the region, refer it. It's no sense, this runs very superficial in this area. So six centimeters back, you get close to that, my recommendation to you would be to, to pass it on. Now, I talked to a plastic surgeon, uh, head and neck uh, surgeon, and, and uh, he only does facial stuff, and I asked him how nervous the spinal accessory nerve makes him, and he just laughed. He's like, spinal accessory nerve does nothing to me. I'm like, yeah, because I, I don't know, I'm sending every one to you. He says, it's a three-foot putt on the golf course, it drives me nuts, but the spinal accessory nerve to him was no big deal. So it's like, yeah, you teach me that, I'll help you with the whole golf thing. Um, all right. So let's just look at some examples. Which ones do we have to worry about? Is it this cyst that we have to worry about? No, okay? That's not in the posterior triangle. That's not six centimeters back. That wouldn't be a problem. We'd go after that one all day. That one's getting a little closer. Still not six centimeters. Take your, take your ruler. Wouldn't even be close to six centimeters. It's this one that's getting close. Okay, it's probably still outside, but it's in the region, and it, it, the size of that cyst and being anywhere, we're busy enough, I'm not looking for trouble, right? I'm gonna pass that one on. So just measure it, six centimeters, come from the earlobe, go six centimeters back, kind of about 45 degree angle, but in that posterior triangle, if you're in that region, as shown by the picture here, you have a temporal, uh, the branch of the facial nerve, the temporal branch, the marginal mandibular, which in this young patient will be along the, the margin of the mandible, or then you have the posterior um, triangle six centimeters back from the lobe, kind of down. Anywhere in that area, be careful. Continuing with safety, I would always start in every surgery with your surgical tray looking like this. Okay? If every surgery went without any complication or any bleeding, it really wouldn't matter how you start with your surgical tray. But as soon as you get a, a squirting blood vessel that's hitting the cabinet or spraying on you every time you look up and you're reaching for a curved mosquito to clamp that thing off, you do not want to be reaching into a dirty tray of this, dirty instruments. Okay? Of all those instruments, which one do you, is the one that you think would get you? You'd think it'd be the blade. It's the skin hook. That is, that is razor sharp, pinpoint. I actually had one where I reached and it caught my glove and it took a piece of the glove onto the, onto the skin hook. Can you imagine how thin that was to get the, the glove and not my finger? I mean, that was, I don't know, micron is even probably small enough to how close that was, okay? So it's the skin, so you do not want to start your tray. Actually, I took this picture. A nurse set up the tray for me and I started laughing. I'm like, really? We're, uh, okay, this is not how, and we just laughed. It's like, we got to start, with, do it every time because as soon as things get crazy, you're going to be reaching for instruments and you've got to have an organized tray. Local anesthetics, do you guys, uh, you know, breaks into two amides and esters. Do you know the trick of determining which one is, short of just memorizing? Don't want to bore you. So if somebody's lidocaine allergic, what, which one you can use, you can memorize which class it is, or it's a simple little trick. The word amide has an I in it. And since these are all canes, they all have one I in them. But anything that has more than one I is part of the amide class. If it has one I, it's part of the ester class. So lidocaine having more than one I is part of the amide class. Novocaine has one I, it's part of the ester class. Okay? Now that only works with generic local anesthetics. Okay? Now I have faith in you, you guys are all my colleagues. I am going to ask you a question. Uh, don't yell it out just in case you're wrong. Just think to yourself, right? Marcane, which one is? Amide or ester? It is an amide. 
Marcaine is the branded name. Bupivacaine is the generic name. Bupivacaine has more than one eye. It's an amide. Don't make, that's why I put that one up there. Now, our plastic surgeon, if somebody is lidocaine allergic, uses bupivacaine routinely. And I asked him about that. I was like, you do, like, I don't mean to, like, we're good friends, but I don't mean to insult you here, but you do realize those are both amides, right? And he's like, yeah, but the cross-reactivity is so low, I don't worry about it at all. So what's the first thing I do? I go tell Dr. Schiff, hey, you know that for lidocaine allergy, allergic patients, Dr. G. Aquino over here is using bupivacaine. He thought it was crazy. So I don't know what to tell you, but if you have the option, try to use the other class. Don't just you know, accept the fact that there's low cross-reactivity. I wouldn't want to be the one that had the... So bupivacaine, it's an amide. Lidocaine with epinephrine, acidic pH, burns like crazy. Okay? Uh, so we buffer it with, with sodium bicarb in a 1 to 10 dilution. The nurses just take out 3 cc's of sodium bicarb, put it in a 30 cc bottle of lidocaine with epinephrine, and I tell them that's not actually 1 to 10, that's 1 to 11, and the, the eyes get all glossy. And All right, I just stop right there. We accept the fact that that's a 1 to 11 dilution. It still dilutes it and buffers it enough, but technically they should take 3 cc's out of that lidocaine with epinephrine. But again, I try to explain, explain that, and it's, it's a lost cause, so we don't go anywhere. Um, all right, so we talk about we talk about punch biopsies as part of our, uh, part of our surgical pearls. Uh, this picture actually cracks me up. I've used it for a while. The one on the far right has no punch on it. I don't know who put that picture. I, I picked this off the internet. I thought it was funny. I don't know what that one's supposed to depict. But I am a firm believer if you're seeing someone with a rash, an inflammatory eruption, it needs a punch biopsy. Personally, I think shade biopsies are inadequate to give you a, a diagnosis. If you think otherwise, that, that's you. This is what I do. Uh, and the reason I go for that is this was a, a patient that I had that came in. A shade biopsy was done primarily of the middle, and NLD was the report. Necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum was the report that was given back. You guys know what that looks like. It's on the shin, not the arm. It doesn't look anything like this. So a punch biopsy from the leading edge where the pathology is. Any guesses? GA. Yeah, pretty common. Not NLD. Completely different. So punch biopsies, I'm a firm believer in punch biopsies for, for rashes. Lately, I've been doing a number of figure eights. If, that's one of those where if you're not sure how to do figure eight, I put it on here for you. If you still have a question, shoot me an email. Any of these sutures I talk about, if you're not sure how to do one, I'll just videotape myself doing one, and I'll send you the video. I'll either do it on a, on a pad or maybe even from a patient. I'll just show you how to do one quick. Uh, but these figure eight are, are good sutures to know. You guys doing pilar cysts at all? Anybody doing excisions of pilar cysts? Please don't, please don't shave the head. Uh, I don't think it's necessary. I know people do because they say it, you have to have sterile technique. You can't sterilize hair, so you need to shave it to get it. Um, but I don't know. My wife would be really upset if she got shaved and that was done. Uh, rep came to me, and her husband had just had one taken out. And, and I said, why is he wearing a hat? And she goes, well, they shaved the whole front of his head. And I guess I made some kind of face because she's like, why? You don't shave? And I'm like, hey, I, don't, I didn't do it. I don't know what to tell you, but I try not to. All we do is we simply pull apart. We, cleanse, you know, we use the HIBA cleanse. We wet the hair down, and I just work through, uh, work through the hair. Makes it a little tougher, no joke. Sometimes I wish I shaved, especially when the hair is the exact same color as the suture. It makes it a little tougher. But uh, your patient will appreciate it. Uh, I did, wasn't that long ago, I walked in the room and the nurse didn't know that, and it was a young girl and she had the front part of her head shaved, 
And I'm like, oh. Like, uh, too late to say anything, right? Like, you can't put the hair back. But I just had a conversation with the nurse. It's like, I know we don't work together that often, but please, I, I don't shave those. I also just put in sutures uh, on the top, cuticular sutures, and I use absorbables. And I just let them fall out. Now, in this last conference, the most surgeon who says undermine everything says you cannot do that. They'll, they'll never fall out. Well, I've done it for 18 years, and they seem to fall out. Uh, and just before I came to tell you that, I had a patient come back this week that was like, oh, these haven't fallen out yet. So that was my first one, and so I guess I have to reevaluate. But I usually use monocryl and a 4-0, just simply use simple interrupted sutures, pull it together, nothing deep, and uh, just let the sutures fall out and leave them cut just a little bit longer, and they end up falling out, generally a few weeks. These are sutures you should know how to do, sutures you should have at your disposal. Simple interrupted uh, subcutaneous, that is the most important suture you can learn. That's that sub-Q suture, just simple interrupted sub-Q. The first um, simple interrupted sub-Q you put in orients your entire closure. So if you kind of stink at that first one, cut it out. Put it in again, right? Because if you're a little kitty wampus when you put in that first one, your whole closure is going to be a little bit off. And I know when I'm putting them in, if I don't like it, I'll just clip it out. And I know for a fact, because I hear the nurse go, <sighs> right? And like, and I look at him, I'm like, dude, if this was your grandma, you'd want me to cut this one out, right? Like, you've got to be a perfectionist. If I don't like that first one, I'll clip it out. Uh, so really take take pride in being good at sub-Q sutures. It makes the rest of your closure uh, do far better. Simple interrupted and simple running cutaneous sutures. I was asked at the break, what do I use? I close almost everything with a combination of simple interrupted and uh, like some vertical mattress. I really do. That's about everything. People say it's not as fast. Do you can, uh, not gonna say, but you can do a closure plenty fast just doing simple interrupteds. Uh, it's not about that anyway. It's about getting fine approximation of your edges, and I just think I'm better at it with simple interrupteds than I am with the running. Now, Dr. Schiffle I work with does all running sutures. It's just your, if you're getting good cosmetic outcomes, don't let anybody tell you you need to do a certain suture, okay? Vertical mattress, we're going to talk about these horizontal mattress sutures. Staples, don't forget about those, especially in the head. Uh, works great. Some sutures that, if you're pretty advanced, I, I was talking to the Mohs uh, PA here at the break. If you're pretty advanced, you may know pulley suture. If you don't, um, I think I'll, I'll show you one here. Figure eight suture we talked about. Tip stitches and um, sub-Q vertical mattress, which is a little specialized. Again, if, if you can't find it on the internet or not sure how to do that one, let me show you. I, I probably use that once a week. I'll use a sub-Q vertical mattress suture. Uh, thank goodness these days are gone, right? I actually, this, all I got was wound check in room one, and this is what I walked in. I had to take a picture of this. Uh, this is a, a, a guy who was doing a residency with it. He was doing some training, and he thought that this was the way. He ha we have this skin stretcher. I didn't even realize that we had it in the clinic. Like, I don't even know how long it had been there, but those clips are stapled in, and they just simply turn the big blue dial, and, and it's got string around each of them, and they're just stretching the skin. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, this patient was in a lot of pain, and if you notice from the picture, it's a little white around it. I simply just anesthetized and pulled all those things out. I clipped all those. There, we got lots of better options than stretching the skin. That looks like a torture contraption, right? Like, one more crank, and you'll tell me everything you know. I mean, that's what it looks like. So get really good at those sub-Q sutures. 
uh, again, it's just fine approximation when it comes to putting in the top stitches. Get really good uh, at those. Really, you, you close it like that, you just need some steri strips, right? I mean, it really looks like it could close well. When you're using sub-Q sutures, know the characteristics of the suture you're using. Not only if it's monofilament or braided, which there's some argument for each one. Like monofilament, the knots will come untied. Well, not if you tie it right, right? And the, the braided will create more um, tissue damage and risk of infection. I don't think either of that is true. I know great surgeons use Vicro for everything, and they have great cosmetic outcomes. So uh, whichever one you prefer. I don't particularly like Vicro because once you tie the knot, it's stuck. There is no adjusting it. You're done. Uh, that's when you end up clipping out if it's not right. So I use a lot of monofilament, and then it depends on when it dissolves. If you want something, to, if you're working on the face, use something that dissolves very quickly, like Caprosin on the far left. If you're working on the back, you would never use Caprosin. You can use things like Dexon or Maxon, things that take longer. Uh, Biosin in the middle, the purple ones, Vicro, or the uh, competitive absorbable brand. That's what they called it. But it just gives you generally, you don't have to know exactly how long they last because that's down to the last uh, micron, you know, the electron microscope down to the last fiber that they go. So what I teach my students is it's time when they do a closure to just be hypercritical of your work. Uh, have the nurse take a picture and don't sit and look at it over the patient. They're going to wonder what the heck you're doing. Take a picture and go back and be hypercritical of your work. And if you want to get really good, you take out your own sutures because you want to see what it looked like at the time the sutures were coming out. And, and there's no better way to learn than be a, a, a honest judge of your own work. Okay? But what are we looking for when it comes time for the closure? You're looking for a wound that's at peace. Okay? You want well-placed sutures that are, that are equidistant from the surgical wound, the surgical incision, and... Uh, Eversion, if you can tell on a picture, okay? How do you feel about this one? You feel, yeah, I feel pretty good. Like it's just, like Zen, right? Just, ah, I, I would expect that that outcome would be pretty good. Okay? You're looking for each side of the wound, are, are those sutures the equidistant? Like people ask, well, is it like a millimeter or is it three millimeters? How far? I don't know. As long as it's the same on both sides, you're going to get equal pulling of the tissue. If you get off on one, you're going to pull one tissue from one side a little more than the other. That's why it has to be equidistant on both sides. The question comes out, how many sutures do you need? I'm like, how many should I put in there? It's like, no more than you need. If you got it well put together with the sub-Q sutures, put only the amount of sutures in there that you need, just enough to finally approximate the edges. This is Dr. Amura. She doesn't do surgery anymore. Uh, it's really an interesting case. Just, I don't know, just become paranoid, just out of the blue, just couldn't do it anymore, just stopped. So she just does general derm now, but she was great. You look at that, and everything about that closure looks like it's going to do well. And she did very few sutures, but did great at, sub, at the sub-Q suture, right? Everything about that's going to do well. So I can't tell you, like, exactly the number of sutures you can use. I can tell you when too many is too many, all right? Like, what? I, I don't know the reason that we would need this many sutures, but I can tell you that it's constricting the blood flow to the wound. Okay? You put that many in every time. You know a suture is a bow with a, with a big, you know, it's, it's a complete circle, a big bow on top. So when you crank that thing shut, you're, any blood vessel going in the middle of that is being compromised to some degree. It's being, being impeded. And so when you put that many sutures in a wound, do you see the pallor in the middle? Do you see how white that is? That tissue shouldn't be that white. 
It means it's getting no blood supply, and there's no reason to put that many sutures. If you needed that many sutures to approximate the edges, we need to work on the sub-Q suture, right? That's the issue. So I don't know exactly how many sutures you need, but I can tell you when you put too many in. This is a closure that we did, and what I wanted to point out here is do you see that they're not completely equal going across? That you have, like, it look, one's a little closer, but they're equidistant. The next one's a little farther, but they're, they're equidistant from each other. Then there's a little gap in the center. Do you see that? And then the last suture at the top. You know why that is? The sub-Q the, the sub suture was in the way. When you start to put that, that suture in the top, you'll feel the sub-Q suture underneath. And if you continue on, you're going to pop that thing, and you're going to get the opportunity to put that one back in. Okay? So if you feel it, like, don't jam it in there, but if you start to go in, you feel it, back it out, move it up a little bit, and just finally approximate just north of it. That's why those sutures aren't, aren't exactly the same. That's why I threw that in there. This is how we dress, you know, the ointment that we put on before we dress it, but that's not why I, I chose to put this one in. I think everything about that's pretty good, save for one issue. What issue do you guys see with that? The knots are right over the wound. Do you see that they're not pulled to one side? They're left right over the top. You leave those sutures, you leave those suture knots right on your wound, and they're going to become incorporated in the healing process of that wound. And you're going to end up with little micro ulcers or, or a widened scar that uh, you wouldn't have otherwise had. So just pull them one direction or the other. It doesn't matter, but those are left right on top and uh, can lead to problems in the future. Very few things in nature are straight lines. Like nothing on the face is a straight line. Like, I guess nasally will fold, but even that's got a little bit of a curve to it, right? So when we put scars on the face, we try not to put straight lines if we can help it. Maybe it's a, an S-plasty, you can look, or maybe you know, it's a little lazy S-plasty. S or in this case, it's just a, a curvilinear, just a gentle little curve on the cheek will go a long way in the cosmetic outcome for this patient. And the way that you do that, you see the bottom line is just a little flatter than the top. And the bottom line there, that's the direction it's going to curve, and that's a closure... Man, I remember, I, that's probably early 2000s I did that closure. That's an old picture. But that just shows just a curvilinear. Uh, I was debating on what to say about this picture. Uh, no matter how good you are at doing suturing, no matter how advanced you are, if you're not paying attention to relaxed contention lines, it doesn't matter. You could, be the, you could do the best scar, and it goes across those lines, and it's just going to look awful. The reason I was debating, this is a, a, a Mohs surgeon in our town that actually advertises against PAs. Uh, and it's funny because I've worked in town with them for 18 years, and for 18 years I've seen these kind of closures. So I just thought I would throw that in there. I, I'm, I'm actually probably glad that he advertises that he doesn't like PAs because I wouldn't want anybody to mistake the fact and think a PA did that closure. Okay, That's routine um, work. So not only is it against the skin tension lines, it's pulled together with like 3-0 or something big, and that's what we see. This guy probably doesn't matter, probably doesn't care. You do that on a, on a young female, uh, big deal. There's a, an age-old saying that in cutaneous surgery, we approximate, we don't strangulate. You approximate the edges, okay? You approximate the edges, even those are on top of the wound, if you see it. They're not really pulled to one side or the other, so you just pull them to the side, but approximate the edges. Gentle. I always think it's funny when we're doing Mo's and we're going to take a picture, patients always smile. It's just like a, it's like, okay, we're getting a picture. It's like you just had a cancer surgery, but everybody likes to smile, so she smiled. 
but that's the best place to do an excision, right along the nasolabial fold. They're going to think you're a magician. It's like, oh, you're like a plastic, so you didn't even give a scar. Yeah, well, it's just kind of hidden in there, but it's like the best place to do it. So everything about that, though, do you feel at peace? Like the, the edges are together, um, nicely approximated. They're everted. They're, they're equidistant. Everything about that. You just expect, like, if there's an outcome that's not expected here, like if there's a, a complication of any kind, it would be surprising. You go back to this picture, and it would be a shock. Okay? Just gently. Just feel at peace as you look at these. Look through them. Uh, oh, how does that one make you feel? Like right there, right? Like it just it like creates some tension in me when I look at that wound. All right? That is not. That's strangulated. That's not approximated. And that's very tortured. Is I guess the the description I would use for that wound. And what do you think of this one? So, yeah, I mean, there's, it's kind of approximated. It's, there's not, it's not tortured, that's for sure, like the last one. But if I'm showing it, there's got to be a problem with it. Yeah, yeah, dog ears, you definitely need a pucker, and I hate dog ears. Man, I've cracked every single one of them if I can see it. I, I just hate them. <laughs> it's like a, I don't know, a dream about them maybe, I don't know. But that's exactly right. You see, it's not equidistant from, this, from the surgery from the incision line, from the wound. You see how one side is very near? Go to the very bottom suture. See how narrow, how close to the wound it is? And on the opposite side, how far it is away? So you're recruiting tissue a lot from one side and not at all from the other. You're going to get a step off. It's not going to be equal. It's not approximated, which means they're touching. It's, one's going to be elevated simply from the placement of the cuticular suture. Okay, how do you feel about that? This is a running, obviously a simple running suture. Uh, this is Dr. Schiff. He does it where the, the suture on top of the skin is straight line, okay, like that. You'll find some that do curved, you know, angled on the top. It doesn't matter. There's got to be an angle somewhere. If it's straight on top of the skin, the angle's under the skin. Then it's straight on top. Then it's angled under. This angle's on the top, goes straight under. The outcome's exactly the same. doesn't matter. It's personal preference. Just looking good. That's the sutures getting ready to come out. You can tell, especially towards the bottom, that wound's already healed. That, the outcome of that's going to be great. Especially old skin. Older skin heals great, right? It's the young kids you hate doing. It's just a, an unfortunate rule of nature is that the young kids who care about the outcomes have the poor, wide scars, and the, the old patient who could care less gets the thin little lines, right? That's what always happens. So when it comes to the hand, uh, it invariably ends up with a pucker on the superficial aspect of it. I tell you that I hate... Oh, bump the... I tell you that I hate the uh, dog ears, but in this particular case, I don't touch them. Okay, in the back of the hand, simply from the anesthetic, you're going to end up with puckers on the superficial aspect, but if you just leave them, it always lays down and goes flat. Here's one. This is years ago for mine, like early 2000s. But I still like it because it shows the puckering at the top, and if you just leave it alone, this is, uh, this is what it's going to look like. So we want not only approximation, we want eversion. Do you see in the running part of it here, there's, there's the, the running suture and there's two vertical mattress sutures. And the whole purpose of the vertical mattress is to tint up or evert the skin. And if you take a look, I guess if I can go to this, if you look down here, you see how it's inverted? It, the, the epidermal edges are rolled in. Now the epidermis is dead, right? You put two epidermal edges together, it's not going to heal. You need the dermal edges where the blood supply is to touch each other. So when you see inversion there, that's going to that's gonna widen a little bit. So 
although Dr. Schiff did a great job with that surgery, probably could have done another uh, vertical mattress uh, a little bit lower than that. And he's not here, so I'm going to say that. Um, vertical mattress, very important suture. Helps you to evert that tissue. Okay? You see him in the center there? If you're going to do vertical mattress, just be cautious. You know, the cautionary tale there is be careful with that you're not strangling. you careful with the tension on the wound. But the way that you say it is far, far, near, near. Far, far, back, near, near, and then you tie it. That's vertical mattress. Practice one. If you haven't done them, they're, they're awesome. The vertical mattress in the, the center of the forehead. Vertical mattress mid-chest. But that far, far, near, near, they have to be far apart from the near, near to leave you this little tag so you can get, it, get them out. Okay, if you don't do that correctly, like that's really far, far. <laughs> like you see on that the left side of that wound, how far away that is. You have no problem suture scissor getting underneath that, clipping it out, right? Or eleven blade, pop it right out. What about this one? Like it almost looks like it's near, 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 right? It looks like they're all right next to each other, and you can't see any part of that. And I get frustrated by this because I don't do this one, but the nurses, when they have trouble getting the sutures out, come get me to come get these sutures out. And I hate doing it because there's, as soon as you do surgery on, on the tissue, it's the first thing it does is it swells. If it's already like this at the time of the closure, you're going to swell right over your sutures and going to be impossible to get out. So that far, far needs to be a distance away from your near, near to make it easy to get the suture out. So I'll show you examples. So you see how it's just too close, too puckered. And you see how it grew over it? Like you can't see the knot and the, the other side of the suture is actually grown under the skin. They, you just got to be far enough apart that you can get that out because otherwise you're going to be doing this. That's anesthetizing the skin so you can make a cut to get those sutures out. Um, not good. Okay, so horizontal mattress, just side to side, kind of like a box. You see it there? And it does the same trick. It everts the skin, much like a vertical mattress suture. It's, uh, um, it's a little more user-dependent, this one, a little tougher to get it even. Now, you still got to get them wide enough apart. You see, in this case, it wasn't done wide enough that only the far left one is able to, uh, to get out. You can slip a 15 or a 11 blade underneath that, pop that one right out. The other ones, yeah. Okay. You probably create, maybe even create a little scarring trying to get in there and get those sutures out. I've only had to do this once. It's just a tip, a little advanced tip. If you, it, it turned out she had a thermal injury that I didn't know about. It was on her leg, and I couldn't even put a simple interrupted stitch without it just pulling right through the skin. Uh, and I don't even remember where I learned this. I have no idea. I just remembered it like way back in the dust bins of, I don't know, some class I'd been in that talked about putting strips on each side of your wound and then suturing through the strip. Okay, so if you have someone who's super thin skin and you're having trouble, maybe you're in urgent care, so it's just super thin skin and you're gonna pull something together, uh, put the strip on it, suture through the strip, and uh, you won't tear the skin. If you're gonna practice, I have no financial interest in this at all. I have just found that this uh, particular product has been the best one. I taught a, a, a workshop for the STPA a couple of years ago that used these, and I fell in love with them. If you're gonna practice your suturing, that's SimSkin. Now, I know I tried to get them for, for the FSDPA and they were on back order. I don't know where they are now, but if you can get a hold of these, these SimSkin, if you wanna practice at home, it's probably the best product that I've come across. And I, I actually uh, have one for my students that we practice at work. All right, so now we're gonna uh, 
move away from that just a little bit and talk about some other surgical pearls. This was a patient that came in to see me, and I was convinced that that was a basal cell under her nose there. And I, so I took a shade biopsy, came back as an actinic keratosis, and I was like, man, that, that, I don't know. It doesn't look like an AK. I'd say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to freeze it, but in a month, I want you to come back and, and see me. So she came back and, see, and saw me, and I'm like, listen, it's, I don't know. It still looks like a basal to me. So I did a punch biopsy on it. Punch biopsy revealed a basal cell. No problem. I mean, it's what I thought it was initially. We just lost a month because I had frozen it. And uh, so now we took a bunch. I uh, punched. I talked to her about treatment options. Like, what are the options that we can do for this? I told her about Mohs surgery. Don't worry. It's a small spot. Make no promises that uh, you're going to live to regret. Okay? This is a lesson that I learned is that's the defect. Okay? She was actually really cool. I, I, I mean, I couldn't have felt worse, but she was cool. She's like, listen, it's a cancer. It had to come out. It, you didn't put it there, right? I just felt bad, and I had told her it was going to be small. I wish I had a, a, a closure picture on her because plastics did amazing, but big scar nonetheless. And so please, for those of us that work in Mohs, I was talking to one earlier, uh, please don't promise the patient it's a small defect because we're left with, the, uh, with what's left. Okay, don't make that promise. This is another situation. That, nothing about that looks big. Okay, you, you take that first layer and Mohs, it's like, okay, this is no problem until you get done. Okay. Now, did we, is that one simple cancer all the way across, or do we run into another one? Sometimes that happens. In the process of cutting out one basal, you run into another. Okay, different, maybe it's a micronodule. I don't know. Maybe it's something you couldn't see initially. I don't know. But please don't promise that they're small. All right, so now we're going to take it next level. We're going to have to bust. we got uh, 10 minutes or 11 minutes left in it. We are going to talk about an algorithm of how to know how to close a wound. And this isn't just good for Mohs practice. This is good if you have a wound uh, in your clinic. You're going to cut something out. You're left with a defect. How are you going to close it? And you can see by the options here, secondary intention, fusiform, or primary linear closure, surgical flaps, which is, uh, you can say, RD, advancement rotation, transpositional island pedicle, and then graft, xenograft or autograft, which comes from the patient. Uh, you don't have, the surgical pearl number seven is you don't have to finish the work that you started. Do you know Dr. Mose initially didn't do any of his closures, right? They cut him out and they just let it heal by secondary intention. It only later did the cosmetic closure become part of it. So we don't have to finish anything. This is a gentleman I cut a, a cancer out in his shoulder. We just decided we wouldn't close it. We just let it heal. You see the yellow granulation tissue coming in. They always think that's infection. They always come back to see it, but it's just part of the scar that's forming. You let that heal to its, to its completion, and there's a good cosmetic outcome. Um, just remember, put them on antibiotics as part of those required antibiotics, healing by secondary intention. So there we have it. I wasn't part of this Mohs closure. I, I, they obviously were drawing it and planning on closing. He must have talked him out of it. You can see in the next picture that he is healing by secondary intention, and there's a bullet hole-looking thing on the side of his head. That's my hand on his shoulder. He's my patient, although I wasn't part of his Mohs uh, treatment. And I'm like, why didn't you have it close it? He thought it makes him look tough. He likes that picture. He likes that scar. He didn't care. He didn't want a whole bunch of, a bunch of sutures. Here's another situation. All I'm showing you here is you don't have to close it. If you cut it out, if, if it's ill-defined margins and it's something on the leg, cut it out, bandage it, put them on antibiotics, and wait to make sure you have a clear margin before you do some big closure on it. And a lot of times you find out just letting it heal is going to be fine. Of course, if it's on the leg and below the knee, it's going to take like three times as long. But that's okay. It's still going to heal in the end. I have no idea why they did secondary closure on this one. That would have been an easy closure. Uh, and I'm not sure I like the, the scar that it resulted in. 
but just know that you don't have to close it. You can always, if you start to close something, you realize, man, this is way too tight. Just put them on antibiotics and let it heal. Or put them on antibiotics and send them to a surgeon. You don't have to finish what you started. Okay? Don't get yourself into, into more trouble than you meant to. This is a friend of mine. Uh, it, I told him, it's like, listen, the only time you don't want to let something heal by secondary intention is when it's by a free edge. Okay? Free edge is being the eyelid, the lip. Okay, the, the uh, nasal ala. You don't want to let things heal by secondary intention because as they heal, they retract. And as they retract, they pull away your free edge. So I told him, you need a graft we need, or we need to close this. He's like, Johnson, we're, I'm good. It's like, no, man, you're a carpenter. I don't tell you how to do your job. You don't, come on. And, you know, he wouldn't let me. And I have subsequent pictures where the very last picture, you see the bands pull, starting to pull that lid, and that was it. He didn't get any ectropion at all. He, if it was a micron bigger, he would have gotten an ectropion on that. So it made me nervous the whole time I was watching that. He did great. Now, sometimes you can do partial. You can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can partially close it and then let the rest heal by secondary intention. The back of the mastoid or over the mastoid process like that is notoriously tight and they're tough to close. So you can close part of it, which makes the hole smaller, and then let that heal by secondary intention. It's going to take some healing time off for your patient. Close part and then let it heal. So secondary intentions, we, that was our first option. Now we have just primary linear closure, fusiform closure. Everybody would like to close this one. I wish every most cases like this in front of the hairline. They're never going to see it over to the side. Super easy. Uh, this isn't one that I did, but I wanted to show you a running horizontal mattress suture. I've been there for 18 years, and for 17 and a half, I never saw this suture once. Uh, somebody must have gone to a, a, I don't know, a conference and learned this suture, because now I see it all the time. So some of you must have learned this along the way, and they use this as a primary closure now, this, this running uh, horizontal mattress. But you can see it, and it gives great outcomes. I, I've never tried it. I probably need to, but here's a running horizontal. Okay, a little curvilinear, a little bit of a curve to it. That's at the time of the sutures out, and that's after the sutures are removed. It's doing great. Okay? Now, how it, we're, we're in uh, primary linear closure, so... I would bet that you would think that this is a primary linear closure, right? That's where we're at. But which direction are you going to take it? Are you going to take it vertical or are you going to take it horizontal? If you take it horizontal, you're taking out part of the eyebrow, okay? The first burrow's wedge, the burrow's triangle you take out, it's going to remove all the hair from her eyebrow. So we had to go vertical on that one, okay? So be, be cautious. It'll actually pull, if she has some hair there, it'll pull one side together with the other, any hair that you removed by removing the cancer. I talked about it earlier, how you want to go vertical on the mid-chest, not horizontal. It seems like all the horizontal ones give hypertrophic scars, and I, I hate seeing it. I even call it a surgical danger zone. Like, be careful that mid-chest. The outcomes are just not great. But if you're going to do one, do it vertical in that closure if it's on the mid-chest. It does far better going north to south. Another one, simply going linear. If you can close it linear, I don't like this saying, but it really is true. Keep it simple, right? Um, all right, some scalps are like Sharpe dogs, right? You can move from one ear to the other. They have so much laxity. This guy was the exact opposite. It was hard like that. It was rock hard. And so we decided we'd send him into plastics. But he had taken time off work, couldn't miss any more work, needed us to close it. Dr. Schiff said, fine, and then he disappeared. <laughs> and it was me. I'm like, oh, man. This was probably the hardest closure I've ever had and the only situation I've ever used pulley sutures uh, and left them in uh, to go. 
I did everything I could. I went, we were down to the Galia. I did as wide of undermining as I could do and uh, used staples and pulled on this thing. And, and I knew that if I cranked that last little bit, we were going to lose some of that tissue. So um, I left it partially open, knowing that that part would heal by secondary intention. Better to do that. So this is a pulley stitch. If you've never used one, I don't use them often, but when I need them, they're, they're awesome. Okay? So if you look at the, the one on the right, and if you were to, to map that out, and I bet looking at your deck you guys can see that, you would describe it as being far, far, near, near, and then looped back around and tied. You see that? Far, far, come back near, near, and then loop back around and tie. What's far, far, near, near? Vertical mattress suture. Just put in a vertical mattress, loop it back through your loop, and tie it. And you'd be surprised. You know what a pulley does? It lets you, it lets you lift something that's way heavier than you'd otherwise be able to lift. You'll crank that, that wound right close if you use a pulley suture. Now, it's not designed to stay in. I told you one of scalps, the only one I've ever done that was like that, where I left it in. The other one is far, near, near, far. Okay? If you follow it, far, near, near, far, looping and then tied. It can be used on a, on a wound that's otherwise going to be tight. And there's stretch, and then there's creep. If you, mechanical creep, if you stretch something, if you stretch the skin, you might get this far. But if you keep that tension on there and keep that tension on there, you'll get that far. If you keep mechanical pressure, mechanical tension on that wound, you'll get just a little extra stretch, and that might be enough to close your wound. So what they're doing here is putting a pulley stitch in, leaving that tension in there, and then come back in, put deep stitches, Go back through, maybe staple it, clip out that pulley stitch, you're done. So that's why I have my, my email address on there. If you guys have questions about a pulley stitch, where I would use it, how it's done, uh, send me an email. But I, there's times I've used it, it's been a savior. I put this in here solely to show you that I can close the scalp. I didn't want you to think that I never get them closed. Uh, this was a long time ago, but so I put a lot of stitches in there. I probably don't use as many now looking at it, but... Yeah, I just wanted to show that, yes, I can close the scalp. Remember to tell them that if you're working on the forehead, it is definitely going to leave uh, some ecchymosis and swelling of the lids. As long as you do that, they're going to be cool. Be mindful of free edges. I don't know what it is. We get prisoners, and they get the worst cancers. I don't know, just immunosuppressed or what, drugs all they're doing. I don't know what's going on, but that's a prisoner on the right, that young girl with that cancer, huge basal, pretty large for being so young. Uh, but the free edge on the eyebrow, I don't know, is it Leonard McCoy from Star Trek fans who's always got the one eyebrow that's up? I don't think that was the intended look for that patient, so I'd be cautious on those free edges. But when you're suturing on the face, be very mindful of those free edges and, and recruit tissue kind of across, not down. So you see the arrows I drew there to show you where we're recruiting tissue. We're not pulling down the lid, we're, we're suturing across. And there's a great example, going across the eyelid, not pulling down. Be very careful pulling that eyelid down or any free edge. I pulled this out of our deck. I don't know who did it. I, I, I'm not sure, but they did not. They recruited tissue from the eyelid, and you can see it pulling down. Um, not, a good, not a good look. That's definitely an ectropion. The patient was having troubles. Okay. Free edge can be the nasal ala. Um, we're going to go over just a little bit, Brian. Hopefully you guys are okay. I got thumbs up. All right, we can stay all night. I don't fly out till tomorrow, so we're good. Uh, whoever wants to stay. So the free edge is also the, the nasal ala. Okay, so how are we going to close that? 
Well, secondary intention's not gonna work because as soon as that starts to heal, you're gonna retract that nasal ala. Okay? Primary linear closure, I don't know, let's, let's shelve that one. Okay? We start talking about different flaps, advancement, rotation, island pedicle, what can we do for these things? Well, our plastic surgeon decided to close it primarily in just a straight linear closure. And it, I thought it did okay. The problem is you see a little bit of raising in the nostril, you know, the nasal ala, not a big deal considering the cancer that was there, right? You say, hey, listen, that's why you want to show them the picture. Look what we were dealing with, right? But look at how it narrowed that side. And she came to me complaining that she's having trouble breathing out of that side. So I sent it back to Dr. G. Kino. We're wait I'm waiting to see how he's going to fix this. I don't know how you expand that side. This is a new one on me. But always be mindful of free edges. Anywhere, lip, nasal ala, eyelid, eyebrow, be mindful of those with whatever you're doing. If you're never nervous, you're never growing, okay? If you're only doing simple little excisions and you could do those in your sleep, guess where you're staying for the rest of your career, doing simple little closures. If you don't pucker just a little, if you don't sweat just a little, okay, you're not growing, right? Um, and a perfect example was that one. I mean, I, that, I don't know, I still have nightmares on that one. I still don't like that closure. But this is one, this is, a, um, I don't know, a month or two ago. It's very recent. Yes? How, how long did you leave it with that He came back at two weeks. Yeah, I left it in. He did great. I wish I, I and somewhere I do have the picture of uh, healing by secondary intention. The question is, how long did I leave those staples and sutures in? I think we brought them back sooner, but they end up staying in a while. Yeah, because it was tight. This is one, it uh, wasn't that long ago, and again, I've done surgery a long time, and this one made this, I was nervous on this one. I didn't like this. The, uh, the original uh, cancer that I biopsied was much smaller. By the time she got in for me to excise it, they grow pretty fast sometimes. Those well-differentiated squames can change quite a bit in two weeks. So here she came in, and I excised that. And I was nervous the whole time I did it, because I had this one in mind. Do you remember this guy that had too much tension on the wound and ended up with necrosis? I did not want that happening to this hand. Okay, do you see how white it is? I'm pulling that thing together and it has already got a fair amount of pallor and a lack of blood supply. So what, I left sutures out of the middle. I put the sub-Qs in, but I recognized it turning white and I didn't put the rest of the stitches in. I just put steri-strips. I didn't want to compromise any more, more blood supply and um, this is probably a week, well, must have been sooner than that because I actually had it in the deck. So I guess, uh, I guess it's been a month or more now. Um, but uh, that's the outcome. So just recognizing it intraoperatively. Don't just blindly start throwing sutures thinking you've got to close this one. Um, sometimes it's not an easy call. We, we go through this algorithm, and sometimes it's, I don't know. Which one is it? Is it an advancement flap? Am I going to close this primarily? There's a lot of drawing and discussion that can go on. So I don't want you to think that we look at a wound and we just like, that's what it is, and we, we go ahead and close it and there's no problems. We see enough uh, lesions that are repeats that we do get that way, but sometimes it's tough, and this was, so what I would recommend in this one is taking out the Burroughs Triangle at the top, undermine, close as much as you can, and see if you need to do an advancement flap or if you can just close it primarily. We end up just closing them primarily. So you can take out the top, see how much that you can close, and, uh, and see if you need to recruit more tissue or you can just close it primarily. So that gets us into the flaps. We're going to go quickly through here. I'm just going to show you some examples so you understand advancement flap is simply advancing tissue. Uh, the cheek is a wealth of tissue. You, can, you, you almost have endless amount of tissue in the cheek. So you see 
Jesus advancing from the cheek, not from the temple coming down. But like I said, you can take up the Burroughs Triangle at the top, close as much as you can, and realize you don't need to advance the tissue. You can just simply close it primarily. Keep it simple. Do a simple closure if you can do it. This is what we're looking for, a simple advancement. This is called an O to L. Started out as an O defect, ends up in an L. That's closure we did not, not that long ago. So I'm just going to show you. Just Instead of going straight, straight, you could run into the ear in a straight linear closure. Just turn it south 90 degrees. Advance that tissue up, and it's, it's close in this fashion. Anybody doing Mohs, this is pretty routine closure. An O to L is a single-sided advancement. This is a double-sided advancement called an A to T. And it's just bringing in, I drew those arrows, to simple bringing in tissue from both sides. Okay, Keep it above the eyebrow. That's, that's a little too big and a little too wide to close you know, straight down like we did the other one. So we're going to do an advancement flap here. And this is what it looked like. Simple advancement flap. Is anybody doing these in here? I'm just interested. Is any you guys doing? Oh, man. Oh. Oh, more than I thought. That's awesome. I wasn't sure doing this deck who I was going to have in the audience. But you guys are doing A to T's. This is pretty, pretty straightforward. This is a location we see pretty routinely. And uh, this is at time of suture removal, so that's one week. And we generally bring them back in a couple months, so that's three months. Don't judge a scar till generally six months. That's why I tell patients. Don't judge them too quickly. Simple A to T. Excellent. I mean, not only involving the nasal labial fold, but um, the alar sulcus behind the back of the nose. This patient's going to be uh, very happy with that outcome. Big Mohs layer that's the, numbered there as we were taking the layers. If anybody does Mohs in here, you guys know that we just mark them so you know exactly where the layer was taken, exactly where it started and where it stopped. And uh, so where's the tissue we want to recruit from? We want to recruit from the cheeks, so we're going to do an advancement flap kind of from lateral to medial, and pull that straight across. Cheek has a wealth of, of tissue. It's easy to do advanced flaps uh, on the cheek. In simple rotation, if you did a, a straight advancement, that would be taking the tissue across the nasolabial fold. You wouldn't want to take it across a fold like that. We're trying to run it down the fold. And so we're rotating the tissue in rather than straight advancement, if you see the difference there. It's rotating in. If you're not doing this, it's just good to see kind of the closures that, and what we go through, the algorithm. Sometimes it's long discussion of what's the best way to close it. Uh, sometimes it's straight in your face and sometimes not. I kind of expected to do an A to T here, but this is a, it, kind of an island pedicle if, if flap or Burroughs triangle graft. If it involves a blood supply, it's a flap if you're advancing it forward. If you're just moving the Burroughs triangle forward, it's a graft because it has no blood supply and you're hoping that... Um, it will pick it up in its new recipient site. So just giving you examples of, of the same kind of... This is the same location, but close it primarily. So if you can close it primarily, always close it primarily. I think it less chance of, of complication. Now, I disagreed with this one as I was putting this in here. Small little uh, Burroughs Triangle. If I would have done advanced flap here. I would have taken that north and just straight advancement down. It's just small, but this is going to turn out great. Whoever did it was going to do awesome. It's just different techniques, different thoughts. Back of the ear, you can close part of that and let it heal by secondary intention, or you can take out the Burroughs triangle, slide it forward, and just graft it in. It's going to do great. Worst case scenario is that thing dies, and it just ends up healing by secondary intention. Who cares behind the ear? It's going to do great either way. 
our hand surgeon did this, uh, back of the hand did advancement, the island, the Burroughs Triangle advancement graft, actually. And this, we're coming to the end. This is, this is it. Uh, this was a tough one. Back of the hand, uh, very thin skin. Uh, it could, you know, what could we do? We could let it heal by secondary intention. We could try to do a linear closure. That's a pretty big spot for such thin skin. That would have been tough. Just kind of working it down with you. So secondary intention, linear closure. Then we have flaps. So we have advancement flap. I don't know. Rotational flap, probably not back of the hand like that. I didn't show you any transpositional. We don't do a lot of those. Uh, thank goodness the, the, that's very user-dependent. You've got to know what you're doing on transpositional. We don't, wouldn't do enough of them. Um, and then island pedicle. What we decided to do, or what I did on this, was a xenograft. Xenograft saves every. You can close anything with a xenograft. It's just simply, it's pigskin is really what it is. Xeno, different, uh, different species. And so it's got a shiny side, it's got a dull side, shiny side down. And you just trim it to make it fit. This is perforated. I didn't want perforated. That's just what they end up handing me, and we just made it work. Glue it in, that's all it is. So you trim it to make it fit and glue it in. Usually they're not perforated. Uh, this is before I felt comfortable with the glue. I was always afraid of gluing, getting stuck to the graft. So I was suturing it in, but that was years ago. I now glue them all in. So you just trim it, make it fit, and... Uh, and glue it in. They're designed to fall off. They will eventually. I tell patients, I don't tell them it's pig skin unless they ask. I use the term biological dressing because it does, I mean, it, it does, I mean, that's true to some degree. It's not a lie, but it is, uh, it does help the wound to heal faster, and it, it, the nerves, when having the tissue over the top, there's less pain associated with it, so there's reason to do this, uh, but if you just continue to follow it, it dries off and eventually, it dries up and eventually falls off. The last thing is, uh, don't judge a scar for at least six months. This patient came in, she was, I remember, she was so mad at me. I can't believe the scar you left. And yeah, I mean, it's a little puckered, but six months later, you look at the left, I knew she was going to do fine. That old skin always heals fine. Uh, always does. Oh, what is the Scripps course that mentioned? That came up at the break. The Scripps course is called the Hugh Greenway Superficial Anatomy Cutaneous Surgery course. It's in San Diego. I think it's coming up in August. It is a boot camp of hardcore, fast-paced surgical knowledge. Uh, it's expensive. It's, a, I think, about five grand just for the course. It's cadaver work. You have an instructor over your shoulder, and they're not shy about telling you the things you're doing wrong. Uh, they will put closures up on the, or defects up on a big board and call you out of the audience and make you walk up and demonstrate how you would close it. And you have hecklers in the crowd, and it's, it's no better way to learn than under pressure. Uh, I remember being there at 7.30 in the morning and being there at 10 o'clock at night. It is a boot camp of, but I got, I got through it three times. The first two times I was absolutely overwhelmed, and the third time I think I gained some knowledge out of it. But it is... It's worth going. If you're doing a lot of surgeries, you can make it worthwhile in your practice because they're going to teach you a lot. Yeah, how to avoid transecting nerves if cancer is over one of the danger areas. I'm not sure you can. I mean, you don't, don't always know until you get into it. And if we see, you know, uh, perineural nerve involvement, they get RT, postoperative uh, RT. Uh, Dr. Schiff will also take some of those deep layers and send it off for H&E, make sure that we're not missing anything in Mohs, make sure that he didn't miss something in, in the inflammation. 
What are the colored coverings you had on your surgical tools? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even realize I was on there. We, we have um, minor surgery sets, and each of those sets are color-coordinated. So the nurses, when they're putting the sets together after cleaning them, just puts them together with the other orange ones or the other blue and white ones. They just color-coordinated to keep the sets together. So if you find a, a blue pickup you know, you know, that's separated from its minor surgery set, you know exactly which set to put it with. So it's just color-coded so we can keep them together. That's all. Um, do you use sterile gloves for excisions? Absolutely. We, we maintain sterile technique. There are times when a patient's feeling it. I just had it this, this week. I had a, a large cyst, uh, supraclavicular in this region, that had, you know, we know vein artery nerve, and it had both a large artery and a, God, every time I tried to dissect that thing, a painful nerve going right through it. And so I broke sterile technique and started flooding that thing with, uh, with lidocaine. And I asked our plastic surgeon, I, I told him the situation, said, is there anything I could have foreseen? He's like, no, sometimes that just happens and you just need to flood it with lidocaine and press on. There's nothing more you can do. So uh, yes, sterile technique, but if I break sterile technique and grab a, a lidocaine like for this patient, then postoperative antibiotics. Uh, any tips for everting the, yeah, so everting the edges, that's, that's great. So everting can be done with vertical mattress sutures, horizontal mattress sutures. It can be done with your cuticular suture, your simple interrupted. If you go down at 90 degrees or even back a little bit from 90 and just do a supination with the wrist and just simply turn, let that curve of the needle come around, you'll get eversion. But the other way that I do it, if I'm having trouble with the wound getting it everted, I'll actually fix it with a sub-Q suture. I'll, what, whatever level you come out with your first, you know, it's, it's bottom up, top down when you do a sub-Q suture. So if I'm having trouble everting it, I'll come out kind of in the middle and then come across in the middle so they match, but that actually everts the skin up just a little bit simply from the sub-Q suture, not your cuticular suture. So, but to answer your question, yes, a vertical mattress, horizontal mattress, and simple interrupters, you can evert. Uh, for pilar cysts, do you ever have issues with hematomas when not closing the potential space? That's, that's, a, great, that's a great question. Uh, I use a great big old needle for that one. So when I'm pulling together the pilar cyst, I think I'm pretty much getting the dead space of that one. Now, if it's a huge pilar cyst, which I've had, like the guy comes in and could lean forward and the hat wouldn't come off because his pilar cyst is, yeah, now that one I'm going to close the dead space. And I'm very particular on sebaceous cysts, closing it in multiple layers. So I'm trying to close the dead space as well as a cuticular layer. But uh, pilar cysts, I just haven't had that issue. Uh, that's a great question, though. I do worry about that, and that's why I, I do use such a large needle to do a wide bite as I close it, and um, the outcomes have been great. Oh, yeah, so mentioned a course that you recommended. Can you elaborate? Uh, I think we talked about that, right, that Scripps course. If you look it up, it's Hugh Greenway's uh, Superficial Anatomy Cutaneous Surgery course in San Diego. It's out in La Jolla. Um, yeah, so the running subcuticular, I don't do it so much anymore. Um, so I'm out of practice on that one. I, I'm probably not as good as years ago. I used to use it more in the military. And the reason I use it in the military is they couldn't always come back for suture removal. So I do a running subcuticular and then stereostrip it and let them go. Anymore, I've, I'm, I don't know anybody in our practice that does. And I'm not really sure, you know, a great answer for that. Because I do like the outcomes when I see people who are really good at doing them. I'm not against it. We just don't where we are. I think when we do simple interrupted um, sub-Q sutures, we get nice approximation that I think. Uh, 
And if that pops, right, the whole thing comes undone, that's the other issue with the running subqueue. For closures on the back, do you always close vertically or just, no, just when it's in the midline. Otherwise, I go relaxed contention lines. And the way you figure out a relaxed contention line, you know, have them raise their forehead, have them smile, have them pucker. You'll see where those lines go, right? And on the back, you simply try to move. You try to move north to south, you're going to find that you're not going to get as much movement as you go east to west or even like northwest, southeast. This direction on the back is really the way that it goes. But the more important thing, I think, there is making sure they're in anatomic position when you draw those lines, or you're going to be surprised when they put their arm down that you weren't um, close. <laughs> so what else? Any? You guys are the hardcore attendees. This is a late Saturday, and here you are. I would like to think it's the speaker, but I'm unfortunate that if, I, if you were to be polled, I wouldn't want the... Thanks, guys. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.